0: Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EI TV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. To say it is my pleasure to introduce the next speaker is a bit of an understatement. I vociferously ...lobbied him to consider names, not numbers. He stress-tested me for many months in emails to say, was this an interesting enough thing for him? And I'm incredibly pleased that he deemed that it is. Why? Because Seth Godin is one of the rarest of writers and thinkers and instigators, which is that, on the one hand, he completely commands the space that he began in, which is the marketing Uh, Space, but he's moved completely beyond it, not just um, having defined a whole generation called, a whole era of activity called permission marketing, but also a genre, as it were, but also um, he set up a new publishing project which has scared the hell out of publishers called the Domino Project, and much more besides. And, of course, he's going to talk about radical revolution and the meaning of life, I'm going to leave him to self-manage his time. If he's enjoying himself, he'll speak for his full 30 minutes. Otherwise, he may take comments from you. Seth.
1: Thank you. I want to talk about what you can see through that window, and I want to talk about my unhealthy obsession with Betty Crocker. Um, But first, I want to talk about uh, why the Industrial Revolution was revolutionary in the first place. And I think it's important to talk about that for a minute because, as Clay Shirky has pointed out, every revolution destroys what came before it, before it brings the good stuff of what's next. And while there was a nice little bubble 10 years ago, the very fact is that we are living through the death of the industrial age. And the industrial age was around longer than anyone in this room. And we don't really understand deep down how it impacted everything we take for granted every element of our economy and our life. So let's talk about that for one minute. Adam Smith and Karl Marx both looked at the same device and came to totally different conclusions. The device was a pin-making machine. And 150 years ago, if you were a skilled pin-maker, those little things they put in the shirt, you could make eight pins a day. And after the pin-making machine was invented, four unskilled Pin makers, hired off the street with 10 minutes worth of training, could make 10,000 pins in a day. And when this came to be, Adam Smith looked at this and Karl Marx looked at this and Karl Marx said, we're in big trouble. Workers of the world unite because the guy with the pin making machine is going to keep all the money. And Adam Smith looked at this and said, quick, go buy a pin making machine. (laughs) Well, Henry Ford perfected this whole notion. And Henry Ford uh, invented something he called the Ford system. He wrote an eight-page article in the Encyclopedia Britannica about exactly how it worked. It was all about replaceable parts and the assembly line and mass production. Henry Ford was so obsessed with controlling the system that at one point there were Ford sheep who were herded by Ford shepherds so they could get Ford wool to weave it for the cloth for the Ford seats in the Ford cars. And Henry Ford said you could have any color car you want as long as it's black, not because he liked black, but because black paint dries four hours faster than any other color. And as a result, he could get it off the assembly line faster. So Ford had a pin-making machine, a device that could make a car for half of what anybody else could make. This at a time when there were 2,500 car companies in the United States and Henry Ford took that huge advantage from that system he invented, and he did something extraordinary. He raised the working wage in Detroit for someone who could work with machines, a machinist, from 50 cents a day to $5 a day, all at once. He didn't do it gradually. So suddenly, the wages that a typical worker was paid went from a farmer who made nothing and just ate what he grew to a factory worker working at a pin-making machine making 50 cents a day, to Henry Ford paying 10 times that. And so the middle class was born. So the notion of workers who got paid enough to buy stuff was born. And Ford was being fairly selfish about it. He realized that if he could change the standard, other people would have to pay that much, and so workers would have enough money to buy his stuff. He was a megalomaniac, and he also changed the world in the process. So what does this have to do with Betty Crocker and those people you can see through the glass? They're busy making average stuff for average people. Actually, they're not making anything. They're just selling average stuff to average people. And so the Mad Men era, the era of Darren Stevens at his ad agency, the era of packaged goods, started pretty much with Betty Crocker, who isn't real, but if she was, she would have been a billionaire. And Betty Crocker went on the radio in 1932 with a radio show where she paid for it, where General Mills paid for it. And for 30 minutes, she would give people Martha Stewart-like advice on the radio, this fictional woman. And so many letters came in with questions that General Mills ended up hiring 200 people, all women, training them to sign Betty Crocker's name the same way. So if someone got two letters, they wouldn't be confused. And the show got longer and longer, and the number of products grew and grew. These were average products for average people because they're for the masses. And if you're going to be a mass marketer, you better make something the masses want to buy. So here we've got factories filled with fairly well-paid workers compared to what they used to get paid, making stuff for the masses. And once the factory is lined up and once the factory is working, what do you do with the marketing people? You say, here's our stuff. Here's a budget. Go sell it. And so the Industrial Revolution wasn't just about smokestacks. The Industrial Revolution was this system that made us all rich. That we're rich because the huge productivity boom that Ford came along with and the huge boost in mass marketing that TV came along with. And when you put the two together, it was magical. It created the world we live in now. And all the people who are whining and complaining and hurting and angry and upset about the economy – Part of it is a cyclical recession that's going to go away if it hasn't already. But there's something else that's permanent. And the permanent thing is you cannot make a good living anymore doing what someone else tells you to do. Because the minute they can write down your job, the minute it can be put in a manual, it can be done by someone cheaper than you. And you can no longer build a business selling average stuff to average people and hope to grow faster than the market by hiring those guys. Because the TV trick is gone. It doesn't work anymore. That The, the lesson of Madman is the reason that John Hamm had time to sleep with so many people is that all he had to do was buy a lot of TV ads and everything else would take care of itself. In 1962 and 1972 and 1982, if you bought a lot of TV ads, you were fine. And now it doesn't work anymore. And so on one end of the coal mine, the canary is in trouble because TV ads don't pay off like they used to. They're not undervalued. There's no bargain. On the other end, the factory boost of productivity is gone because as soon as someone cares about the price, Walmart will find someone cheaper than you to make it. And as a result, there's stress at all ends of the system. And so the factory era is in trouble. The Industrial Revolution is ending on our watch. You can't really hope for a long-term career working for one of these in one of these big skyscrapers in New York City maintaining the momentum of a brand we all grew up with because the brands we all grew up with owe all of their future to who controls the shelf space. Right? And the scarcity of shelf space was also a byproduct of the Industrial Revolution because if lots of people want to make a lot of money selling stuff, the bottleneck they have to go through is the store. So the store, the Barnes & Noble or the, uh, or the Macy's is the gatekeeper of what's going to get bought and what's going to get sold. And suddenly they're in trouble too. And so I'm going to sort of end this rant with this. We have to make a decision about scarcity versus abundance. And the factory era is all about scarcity. Scarce natural resources, scarce ownership of factories, scarce time on television, scarce shelf space. And the people who win are the people who corner the market or become patent trolls or own trademarks or do something that lets them carve out something that's scarce. And then they get to make money from it for a really long time. And the internet is bringing in this new era of abundance, right? An infinite number of channels, not three. An infinite number of ways consumers and businesses can find what they're looking for. You want to run an ad on Craigslist? Oh, it's free. Go ahead. You want to put a book on Amazon? We have just as much shelf space as anyone wants. You get exactly the same amount of space as Stephen King and Harry Potter. No one gets a bigger slot. We have an unlimited amount. Facebook is making billions and billions of dollars in display advertising. Why? Because they can just keep making more and more pages. And who's making the pages for them? You. And you're doing it with abundance, right? Everyone has more email coming to them today than they did five years ago, than they did ten years ago. Everyone has more friends today than they did five years ago or ten years ago. And so we have this huge abundance of information coming at us, but we can't scale attention. Attention remains scarce. And we can't scale trust. Trust remains scarce. So the things that we can harvest today and count on and leverage and build are around attention and trust. And all those other things that the factories used to think of as scarce are now abundant. And so the big thing, and the thing that's so, I I was sitting over there listening to this great panel before, but I'm watching, the thing is, you know, don't throw stones, you might live in a glass house, but the thing is, A lot of people go to work every day to do their job. That's the factory mindset. The factory mindset is you have a job. There's a series of tasks for you to do. You think your job is to do your job. And if you are going to work every day to do your job, a world of pain awaits you. Because your job is going to go away. Your job is going to change. And the people who are thriving now are the ones who spend a huge portion of their day reinventing their job all the time. Right? Reinventing how they're going to earn attention and trust. And so my friend Arianna Huffington is sort of a poster child for this. That if you look, how much time every day does Arianna spend doing what her job was yesterday? And how much time does she spend saying, what am I going to do about trust? What am I going to do about attention? And how am I going to earn more of those two things? And that that's what's available to all of us. That Henry Ford needed a factory. Right. And Darren Stevens needed an ad agency and the ad agency needed to contact with the media salesperson at NBC. None of you need any of those things. None of your organizations need any of those things. And so this model that we were trained in, this model that we grew up with, which is wait to get picked, raise your hand, fill out the resume, apply for the job, see if you will get picked, has been blown up and it's turned into pick yourself. That the magic of TEDx, that the magic of having your own channel on YouTube or Twitter or a blog is you can pick yourself. And you don't need an institution to do it. And institutions can choose to pick themselves or else they can wait to get on whatever the next Oprah is. But there isn't going to be a next Oprah. We're the next Oprah. This surplus of noise is going to get louder and louder and louder. And some of us are going to do work that people choose to pay attention to. So what I'd like to do in uh, the few minutes that I've got left is uh, challenge you to challenge me on this. Because if you're buying it, and I hope you are, then you've got to reconcile it with where you work and the decisions the people you're working with are making. We'll start with this young lady in the aqua, yes.
0: Uh, Seth, thank you for your intriguing remarks. Uh, my name is Aline Felder, and I'm a strategy consultant in the area of inclusion and diversity. And your comments, I wondered if you could refocus or recast them in the context in the United States and globally, completely changing demographics here in the U.S. by 2020, the freshman classes going into all colleges and universities will be majority-minority students. The economic focus is shifting. The strength is now in Asia. We're inventing less here in the United States. And in terms of our own U.S. students, uh, we're lagging in science, technology, engineering, and math. We also are woefully ignorant in our own knowledge of our own history. Can we, I'd like to hear your comments, you know, recasting it in an era of increased diversity and inclusion. Sure. All right, well, Thank you.
1: I mean, I could talk about it for three hours, but let me try to touch on a couple of points. First of all, there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is that school is broken. And it's broken because it was invented by industrialists to train people to be obedient factory workers. Um, I'm not making that up. It's true. That sitting still for eight hours and doing what you're told is the main output of school. And we're creating this whole generation of people year after year who are waiting for a job and there isn't one for them. The good news is, they're even worse at it in Asia. That the model in Asia of testing and compliance isn't encouraging people to go do the kind of work that's going to create the future. So Asia has a huge boom right now because they are the, the they won the race to the bottom. They can make a pair of sneakers cheaper than we can, and they can make an iPad cheaper than we can. But the problem with the race to the bottom is you might win it, right? And we didn't win it. They did. It's interesting to see what happens next. The race to the top though is a different one. And it's one that we need to educate people for. And it's about, you know, teaching a kid not to use a number two pencil and fill in the little circles, but to stand up and say what they actually believe and to persuade people they're right. And it's about teaching a kid to solve an interesting problem as opposed to regurgitate an old problem. Uh, Now the question, though, is what does that have to do with the Hispanic community and the black community and diversity and and where people are interacting? Well, the magic of the Internet right now is that you're not going to judge somebody based on what they look like because you don't know what they look like. You're going to judge somebody based on their writing or their HTML or or the way their website is laid out or what they built or how they made it. And that shift away from the visuals of TV and the casual prejudice of the job interview into a world where we're much more likely to instantly dismiss someone because they have a lame idea, I think is totally positive because it opens the door to a huge number of people. The main reason that younger people are having so much influence in this new media is because they are playing by different rules. You know, If you don't know that that kid is 17 years old who you just gave your credit card to, if the product is worth it, you're going to do it. So that's a huge disadvantage to someone who's been playing by different rules for 30 years. So I don't want to be Pollyanna here. We've got huge problems. But I think the problems are not macro. I think they're micro. And the micro problem is what can we do to get individuals to pick themselves and to stand up and do something even if they've been persuaded since they were three years old that they're not the right color, or they're not in the right neighborhood, or they're not good enough. Because here, in this brief window, for the first time in my lifetime, you can do it if you want to, if you can persuade yourself to speak up in a place that's colorblind, because it can't tell who you are and what your name is.
0: Mess. Oh, forgetting all those complicated and messy issues, how does the young person of today, I happen to know two of them Mine. um how do they monetize... Uh, their individuality, how do they monetize their ability to persuade you that they're right and their argument's marvelous? What if they're not um, able to invent something or uh, that can't, like a product that can be monetized or a service that can be monetized?
1: Right. All right. Well, forgive me, but how dare you say they're not able to do that? I just don't know there's it's not a right. Well, but see, the, so my point is there isn't a map. There is a need for map makers. And people who make maps are getting paid right and left. There's a shortage of people who are plotting, who are doing art, who are making something worth talking about. Well, for example, let's pick Shepard Ferry, a friend of mine, the guy who did the Obama Hope poster. Right, how much money did Shepard make on the Obama Hope poster? And the answer is nothing. How much does he make when he puts up a piece of wallpaper on the outside of a building? Nothing. Shepard's making millions of dollars a year. Literally millions of dollars. And the reason is because the souvenir editions of his work, which he posts on his blog at $400 each, sell out within minutes, right? Because the art part is free. You want his ideas? They're free. They spread. They're worth talking about. But if you want to own a particular one and, and have the right to control it, that's going to cost you money, right? That's one simple little tiny example. In the technology front, You know, there are 17-year-olds and 20-year-olds and 22-year-olds who put themselves through an intense period of learning how to program Ruby on Rails or how to figure out how to make technology bend to their will, right? Those people have this open door now where they can say, oh, here's my app, buy it if you want. Anyone can get 20 people to buy their app. Then the question is, what happens after that? And if it's miraculous, suddenly it's Angry Birds, Right? So the point is, there's all these transactions that are going on all over the place. They're just not going on through the usual institutions, and they're not able to pay people who are receptionists and secretaries and people who move a piece of pi- paper from this pile to those piles. So those people are in real big trouble. So they've got to figure out how to be purple, how to do something remarkable, scary, something that's going to fail, something that puts them way out on a limb that people criticize. Most people do not wake up in the morning saying, how am I going to get criticized today? And my argument is that's the only people who are rewarding are people who are willing to be vilified by some and embraced by others. It's all about the edges. The middle is flattening really fast.
0: So Barry Schwartz has been talking about the the overwhelming choice that we all have in our lives and what that does to the individual. I mean, to say that it's a little terrifying is an understatement. So... How do you deal with that in this new
1: universe? Right. So so Barry's a great guy. He wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. And it's based on some data that shows that if you go to Murray's Cheese and there's five kinds of brie to choose from, you're happy. And if there's 15 kinds, you're bummed out because you're always thinking, wait, I didn't know about number seven and maybe I could have gotten that one instead. And so there's a curve here. What What he's missing, in my opinion, is this, that when you take a shower a lot of the water doesn't even hit you. It just goes right down the drain. But in our country, anyway, there's enough water that you don't get bummed out about that. And there's a whole generation that's coming along that says, you know, I didn't even read some of my email. I didn't even check some of my tweets. There's just so many of them flown over me. If it's important, they'll come back tomorrow. That, that, that the new vacation rep- response in email, I don't know if you know this, is you put up a vacation thing that says, I'm going to be out for a week when I come back, I'm going to delete all the email I got without reading it. If it's important, send it to me again, right? And we can do that because it's just there's just so much of it. And so the choice thing is shifting. It's 15 kinds of breed, why not 30, 30? 300, I don't know, whatever. I'll just take that one, it looks sort of interesting, and I won't be bummed out that I didn't get that one. Because we're growing up now in this culture where you can't follow everyone on Twitter, you can't watch every show on TV, so... You know, when music is free, when you can get a hard drive at every song ever recorded, we drive a truck to your house, as Robert Klein used to say, you don't bum out about the fact that you didn't hear it. You'll hear it another time. And that's the shift, I think, that that Barry's book didn't originally get to. Yes, sir. To spin it from the individual now to the masses, 10 years ago I was in an Internet startup where our founders used to quote you regularly. I hope it worked out okay. uh, No, no. Sorry, not my fault then. We were infamous in being called the dumbest.com by Fortune magazine. Which one was it? We were all advantage. Get paid Uh, to surf the web. Yeah, you guys still owe me $150,000. I I knew that was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the the infomediary was at a time 10 years ago that it was. We all still are owed money, by the way. The infomediary at that time, let's gather people together, give them the power. We have social media now, it's 10 years later. I'm still not seeing the infomediary any closer than it was 10 years ago. Can you give some insight into where you think and when that may happen? Sure. Right. Well, let's understand Yahoo's best years were selling banner ads to big companies in exchange for a press release, right? And most of those companies never even ran the banner ads big companies want to buy stuff from big companies in bulk we're not going to see that happen right that being on the homepage of google is great but you know they put silly gimmicks on the homepage they don't they could sell those for 10 million dollars a day that's 3 billion dollars they're leaving on the table they don't want to show something to everyone but if we look at something like kickstarter what kickstarter says is oh we can gather 20,000 people who want to buy a dice game for $20. I was one of those people. Well, if you add it up, that guy who made the dice game, he doesn't have to work for the next 10 years, right? That's a little infomediary only for obsessive dice game geeks, and then you multiply that times 10,000. That We're not going to see the factory owner have an easy way that they can go tell all the average people about their new sneakers. What we're going to see is lots and lots of little tiny places where someone who makes a little tiny thing can easily connect with people who are obsessed with that little tiny thing. So I'll give you a simple example. If you go to audiogon.com with no E at the end, audiogon.com sells really expensive used stereo equipment from guys who buy it, keep it for six months, and then sell it again. So if you want to buy a Weiss Firewire DAC made in Switzerland that sells for $7,000, you can get it for 3000 Now, the mindset there is clearly not a mass market mindset. It's all search-based. It's sort of everything is miscellaneous. And what the Internet is doing is letting the miscellaneous stuff clump together. And if you're a maker, you've got to realize it doesn't pay anymore for you to build a building where you make lots of stuff cheap. You can get someone else to make it cheap. Your job is to figure out how to make it miscellaneous enough that it will clump up with the people who are fascinated. Couldn't Facebook today essentially do what? Oh yeah, Facebook has many levers, and they are choosing aggressively not to use them, right? And so does Amazon. Like I sit down with Amazon and I say, uh, "Well, you know what you could do? You could just go to readers, organize them, and then if they all paid you three bucks in advance, you could go pay Stephen King five million for his next book, and it would be easy, right? But their mindset is there's a long road ahead, and they want to go full speed this way, not take some of the stuff off the table that they could. And Facebook, I think, is even more disciplined in doing that. So old school people like me look at this and say, why are you missing this opportunity? And their mindset is because it's a religion. And our religion is we're just going to let our users make the content. And all we're going to do is invite them in. They're on record as saying we do nothing for user retention. Our only job is to let people connect with digital. They all worry about the retention. So I got time for one or two more.
0: Um, I like your uh, juxtaposition of from scarcity to abundance, but there's another underlying dimension, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. When you think about the scarcity time, what was available at was free, you know, lots of land, lots of water, lots of energy. Um, as we're moving to 50 50 50, yep. scarcity and energy, scarcity of yep. food scarcity, water, and yet overpopulation. How does that interplay with your paradigms?
1: You're exactly right. I left the second half of the thing out, that a lot of things that were abundant are now scarce. What's fascinating to me is what happens when you spend a couple of days in a village in Borelli, outside of Borelli, India, where everyone has a cell phone. Right. That when everyone has a cell phone, a huge number of behaviors start to change. Right. And I am fairly pessimistic about what the environment's going to be like in 50 years. And I hope, you know, enough technology comes along to help us because it's certainly not going to be self-control on the part of human beings. But when you start coordinating human beings, you know, the very fact that one third of all the food grown in the world is never eaten. It's wasted because we have an information problem and we have a transportation problem, both of which get solved by this. And so I'm seeing all these shifts that are going on where things that we thought were scarce because they were unevenly distributed start becoming more abundant because we can find out where they are and we can connect people who need them right? and use resources in a more intelligent way. So yes, the other half and the opportunity of a lifetime here is find things that are now scarce that used to be abundant and figure out how to use communication to make them abundant again. But it's a great point. And you, sir, get the last word. You make, you make a lot of sense to an elite audience like this. What about the other 100 million Americans who are just working folks and cannot adopt your ideas? Well, there's more than 100 million people who have been sold a bill of goods, who have been manipulated by big government and big corporations, who have been poorly educated and brainwashed into thinking they can't take action on what I'm saying. But... Most of them have access to a public library, most of those public libraries have access to the internet, and every one of those internet connections has access to the entire world market. I get hundreds of emails a day, almost all of them from people who aren't rich, and almost all of it from people who said, this door that I just opened lets me do this, lets me do this, lets me do this, and I'm doing this, and I'm making four times what I used to make before. I don't think this is about where you went to college. I think this is about what attitude, or how old you are, I think it's about what attitude you have about what you're going to do with an open door. And I will tell you from the schools I run, I run free schools all the time, a lot of people see the open door, freak out, and run away. Because if you go through the open door, you're responsible for what happens next when you pick yourself. And for a lot of people who were raised to never pick themselves, that's a very scary prospect. Anyway, thanks for your attention. Enjoy the rest of the day.